when people ask me questions like, how did I get to where I am? Or what do I think about this? Or what do I think about that? Um, I, I lean in pretty, pretty confidently about the context of my life experience. And I said, you know, you've got to appreciate the impact of getting to the age of 65 as a black man in America has had on how I, on my worldview and who I am and what I choose to do. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Kelsey. How are you? I am a little all over the place today, but super glad to be here. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Too much going on. I think it's just a lot uh, in my head trying to organize myself as fall <laughs> semester's kicking off. You need a Kelsey to help you, Kelsey. I do. I, I miss I miss people. Uh, but ready for another episode of Campus Confidential? Yeah. yeah. Who do we have today? We have Paul Brailsford, the CEO of Brailsford and Dunlavy with us today. And uh, uh, I'm really excited to uh, have our listeners get a little glimpse into his entrepreneur background and the company and all the work he's done in higher ed. What, what did you, uh, what do you recall? What do you remember most about this episode that you want folks to pay attention to? I love that he takes us way back to the beginning of his career and how he really started the idea mm -hmm. of B&D. Um, 30 years ago. Right? And he remembers it like it was yesterday, which is fascinating. The other piece that I really appreciated about him is, um, and I can't remember if he shared this on the episode or not, but really this idea of he shows up very poised and thorough, but the amount of work that it takes for him to get to that space mm -hmm. and his intentionality of preparing for everything he does. Yeah. Yeah. He phenomenal. made a comment at one point about uh, how he thinks he is and how he tries to portray himself to people. So that was pretty insightful. And, you know, anytime I, I always admire people that are entrepreneurs, people that have had an idea and then had the courage to do something bold. I mean, he started this company 30 years ago with two employees, him and Chris Dunlavey. They now have 150 employees in seven offices around the country. Um, they've managed something like, well, it's over 1,500 uh, different projects worth $40 billion uh, on university campuses in all 50 states. I mean, they, they really took this idea and grew it to become something really spectacular, which is a, a great leadership story. And I think the number of people that started with him that are still around is pretty high. I don't I don't have those stats yeah. <laughs> in front of me, but from my personal experience of working with them, um, the people that work for him stay with him. And to me, that says a lot about a leader. So should we take a listen? Let's do it. Paul, we're really excited to have you here with us on Campus Confidential. How are you today? I'm doing fine, Kelsey. Awesome. Well, we like to kick things off by you sharing with us, how do you tell a rideshare driver what you do for a living? Ah, what I do for a living. Well, it's interesting. Um, it's a challenging question because I'm almost never in a rideshare vehicle. <laughs> oh. Um, but that's okay. I understand the intent of your question. And so I'm going to take that and 
the, the rideshare driver and use it as a placeholder for a, a random stranger that, that might ask me that, that same question. You're taking rides from strangers, Paul? I don't know. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, that's well, safe. <laughs> not, not, not in cars, but I do find myself in, um, in elevators with random strangers. Oh, there you go. The elevator and, bitch. Um, hotel lobbies with, with, with random strangers. So the random stranger thing as a placeholder uh, works for me. And I have three levels, short, medium, and long. And if I'm not really wanting to engage um, necessarily, and I, but I just but I want to give an honest answer, I simply say um, I'm in the business of making the world a better place. When the uh, the person I'm talking to does not find that to be a satisfactory response, and they probe a little bit more deeply, then I've got a, I, I try a medium version, and I say, well, we fashion and implement. Solutions that advance our clients' strategic interests. And, you know, if I'm talking to you guys and you live in higher education and you can imagine the context in the, in the higher ed um, place, you get a pretty good sense of what that means, but you don't really know. And so I've got to, you know, before I engage in a full-blown conversation, um, I've got a slightly longer version. That simply is um, we inspire and empower organizations to optimize the value of investments that advance them towards their targeted new reality. And so when we say we're, our purpose is to inspire clients, uh, what we're really talking about is challenging them to think in new ways. The, the, the gold that we're mining for is the client response that says, hmm, I never thought about it that way before. To us, that's progress. And so that's what we look for. So, so you mentioned, Paul, uh, at the beginning of that, that your personal and professional selves are really linked. And you're, I, there was a, a colleague once who wrote a book called Do What You Love, or Do What You Are. That's what it was, Do What You Are. So I suspect that that's kind of what you're saying. Let me ask a little bit about early days. You Tell us about your journey. You were doing what when you decided to start Relsford and Dunlavey, and what motivated you to take that? leap at that time. Uh, and if you don't mind too, what excited you and frightened you about that leap? When, when people ask me questions like, how did I get to where I am? Or what do I think about this? Or what do I think about that? Um, I, I lean in pretty, pretty confidently about the context of my life experience. And I said, you know, you've got to appreciate the impact of getting to the age of 65 as a black man in America has had on how I, on my worldview and who I am and what I choose to do. And so uh, one of the earliest memories I have is of my mom and dad telling me about when my dad graduated from officer training school, one of the first 10 black Marine Corps officers ever in the United States, gives you a sense of context. And so they had to drive from South Carolina to um, Camp Pendleton, which is in Oceanside, California, just just north of San, Fran um, San Diego. And for two, possibly three nights, they had to sleep in the car hmm. because they couldn't get a hotel room. Um, that's, that's a pretty significant context for framing my, yeah. my life. Mm -hmm. As I went through elementary school, it was basically the height of the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. And when I went to college, it was the immersion 
of um, affirmative action. I could actually go back and look it up. I, every time I tell this story, I said, I'm going to go back and look up and I can tell you exactly when it happened. <laughs> but I was um, on a Sunday morning, I was watching um, an NFL pregame show. Uh, James Harris was the starting quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. Um, he was the Grambling graduate before Doug Williams that mm. that, that started to uh, make mm -hmm. some headway. And so I'm watching uh, these two white guys who were doing the pregame broadcast, and they started talking about James Harris. And they said, um, do you think uh, James Harris is the first of many to come, or do you think he is sort of a one-off, an exception? The other um, broadcaster responded, well, considering that um, a quarterback is arguably the most intellectually challenging position in all of sports, he's a one-off. Now, what was conspicuous about that is these guys were not angry. They were not overtly hating. They were having what they thought was a factual conversation. Now, I'm in elementary school. Imagine the impact that that had on my sense of self. Immediately followed by the emergence of affirmative action. Um, and so here I am sitting in English 101. I'm the only black student in the class. At the University of Maryland at that time, a significant percentage of the black students there were student athletes. Um, and I was unexpectedly called on to read out of the text. I got a little flustered and I fumbled. The teacher with disgust said, should have known, don't bother and moved on. You know, so I, um, the, the, the fortunate thing in my life context is almost every time I was in my dad's company, he would tell me, you're smart. And so he had built up in me sort of a resistance to that kind of um, negativity. But to say that, that some of it didn't penetrate would be disingenuous. So, you know, every time I talk to my dad, particularly my, my parents got divorced when I was in fourth grade. So we'd spend Sundays so, so with him. So it was a big, you know, he, he was very much into framing, you know, uh, give me a foundation uh, on how I should think about myself. So he would almost like it was uh, a religious thing constantly, you know, this is what lies ahead of you because you're smart, you're smart, you're smart. It was always beat into my, into my head. He was filling your bucket. Um, but the thing is, yeah. you know, when, you know, that's one day a week, the mm -hmm. other six days of the week, um, I'm getting a lot of different kind of signals. And so what sunk in for me was that it's all about effort. It's all about commitment. It's all about discipline. And so, um, maybe there are headwinds. But how much damage are the headwinds going to have on me if I just give up and hide? If I, if I 
persevere, I'm always going to be better, headwinds or not. So, um, so I chose to persevere, and that's what my my whole life journey has has been about. So that was context for how I came to to, to start um, B and D. Um, I worked for a company called MPC Associates, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of a large law firm, Arnold and Porter. It was established by um, a, a partner in the law firm who had left the law firm. So the law firm said, well, why do we need to have Mike's company here anymore? If Mike's not here, we don't need it. So they hired Bain, um, which was a, not a, not the big consul a consulting powerhouse that they are now, but they hired Bain to evaluate what the law firm should do with us. Um, for us lowly employees, we were told that they were just doing some management consulting to help us thrive while still remaining a subsidiary of the law firm. But one of the um, one of the consultants that was uh, working on the team called me up one day and said, listen, what this is really all about is the law firm is going to sell the company to the senior employees. And said, if you are if you have any idea or any interest in becoming an entrepreneur, I would not buy into that group. And the guy called me to say, you have the most positives and you're the only one with zero negatives. So if you're going to go forward, don't go forward with these guys. They're just going to be a lodestone around your neck and make it more difficult for you. If you want to go alone, if you want to do it, go alone. I'm not a go alone type of guy. I'm a team kind of and, guy. And, and had you thought at that time already about starting a company? Was this already a thought in your mind that this person knew about? No. No. Okay. So about four or five months before that, a headhunter had called me and had me fully negotiated to, to become a president of a on-campus student housing I'm sorry, off-campus student housing um, new enterprise that was being launched by a large um, multifamily developer. And that whole process made me feel like, oh, I I can do this. You know, it was a it was about a three-month process, and you know, you have enough conversations and you believe you can do that. And they said, Well, we were gonna have you come down to Texas where they were located. But they decided that I should launch the company in, in D.C. because D.C. was a nation, national kind of address that uh, wouldn't regionalize the, um, the initiative. Um, so that had happened, not thinking about that I would be um, my own entrepreneur, but the thought that I could head up a company had been placed in my brain. Um, now, all the while, while this was going on, after... Mike left the company, the company started to shrink. It was a pretty rapid downward spiral. So there were 50 of us when he left, um, and I left behind about 15 people. So it was shrinking. So as the company was shrinking, I did go into, well, how am I going to survive this frame of mind, which did um, tilt towards entrepreneurial um, endeavors. But um, it was interesting. I just 
found um, notes that I'd made myself uh, a little over 30 years ago on different um, different kinds of businesses I could start to survive the 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 eventual demise of uh, of, of, of MPC. And I'm not going to share that with you, but oh. it was it was pretty humorous. Can you give us one, one or two? Come on, <laughs> what was on the list? I feel like that was just such a tease ball. Well, well, one one is a a a, a constant uh, joke between my partner and I. And it's um, document storage and retrieval with a real estate plan. <laughs> well, and so being in D.C., the federal government has a lot of paper. Of paper. Someone's yeah. got to store it and someone's got to be able to return it when they want it. Yeah. The problem was it felt to us to be mind-numbingly boring. Yeah, you, can, you, you probably can say we're making the world a better place and <laughs> one document at a time. I mean, be a little different story. Right. So anyway, so um, when, when, I get, when I got off the call with the consultant from Bain, who swore me to secrecy, he said, if you ever tell anybody about this, I will deny it. So I would guess this is easily my 150th time telling the story. So I didn't really um, hold that. But um, so I got up, I walked to the office next door, which is where uh, Chris Dunlavey sat. And I just said, just like this, I said, Chris, how would you like to go into business? And, um, and that was the beginning hmm. of um, beginning of the journey. Now, yeah. we um, initially had three other people um, in our little group that we're going to go and do that. Um, one of the people we decided was would not be a good fit. The other two decided that they didn't have a stomach for the entrepreneurial risk. So that left uh, Chris and me standing. And you know the rest of the story. Yeah. The rest is history, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned um, in all of this a comment about your wife. So when does your wife come into the picture and how does that play in spinning up your own business and taking that time? Well, actually that's a interesting piece, right? Because um, my wife and I met while we were both on business trips. And so immediately this incredibly intense long distance relationship bloomed. And the thing that was interesting about that is she was a, a conference planner. She represented um, her tech company to go to various um, conferences. And by the way, tech conferences are way on a whole different scale. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> so, so the um, so the, so the kinds of um, displays that she was responsible for presenting and all this kind of stuff were would dwarf anything that you would see at, 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 at NACUS or in the Cuba. Um, so the interesting thing was, is she had her whole calendar, your calendar mapped out and everywhere she was going was a city that I had a client hmm. and the, the, her last conference in December was, um, in the exact same hotel where athletic business was where I was to be a presenter. So we said, well, we can see each other on our company's dimes on a pretty regular basis for the rest of the year. When we get to December, 
we'll have to make a decision what we're going to do. We were engaged by September. Mm. And um, and the reason why that's relevant to this story is it, um, even though it was, again, I told you personal and professional are fused, it gave me a confidence for taking risks that turn out pretty well. And so that made it easier for me to make the decision to, um, to start BND. That's amazing. And then did she move to Maryland or are we still a long distance relationship years later? She is, she moved to Maryland. Um, and her entire family thought she'd lost her mind, Mm. but, um, it worked out. It okay. worked out. <laughs> you made it happen. <laughs> Took a chance. Hey, Paul, I noticed I, I, what I know about you too is you like mentoring, that you take great pride in mentoring staff, particularly in the firm. And I'm wondering if there, if you could talk a little bit about uh, what makes for a good mentor. Uh, and if you think about all these higher education clients that you've worked with over the years too, what kind of advice would you have for? staff on campuses that are mentoring, particularly new staff, but also seasoned staff. I'm assuming that might be different approaches. So just talk a little bit about mentoring, what you love about it, what advice you have for people and how to do it well. Um, One of the things I discovered fairly early on from mentoring is that um, the, the process of mentoring is very educational for the mentor. And so so the first thing I would say is start right away, long before you feel like you've got anything to offer anybody. It's um, the, the, the best mentoring relationships are just like any other partnership. Um, don't, don't feel you don't have thoughts to offer just because you don't have a degree or certification or some sort of title that certifies you as being um, eligible to offer that advice, um, offer it for what it is, your best thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, don't do it selfishly, mm-hmm. do it unconditionally for the mentee's benefit. Do you find your mentoring to be different for early career or younger staff versus more seasoned staff who've been around a while, or do you have the same Way. Uh, it has to be, it has to be um, much different. Um, life experience has to be taken into consideration in, in, in helping someone navigate. Right, you have to. Um, you're helping someone draw a map. A map. And you can't draw a map to someplace unless you know where you're starting from. So, so life experience and their life context is everything. You feel you strike me as a very consistent person. Try to be. Is that fair? Is that a fair? Um, so thinking of that, of being very consistent there, it makes me believe there's probably routines to how you accomplish your day-to-day life. Is that mm-hmm. true? No. Um, no. If I were to say, how can I get better being, having a little bit more of a disciplined routine, might be something on my list pretty high up. Oh. Um, I, 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 I tend to be um, flexibly f- focused. I'm very outcome 
driven. So my outcomes are always there. But in, at any given moment, what seems to be the best thing I should be doing to achieve those outcomes can move pretty substantially during the course of a day. Mm. Do you feel like that's one of the reasons BND has been around so long and you have evolved? Is that flexibility? We, 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 have, we evolved very deliberately. Mm. Um, and so there are a couple of, couple of books that have influenced how we do that. First, it's good to great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting in that um, a lot of people look at good to great and go, gosh, all these great companies, most of them are no longer great anymore. So therefore, the book may not have been on to something. Um, no. The fact that these companies lost discipline does not mean the book wasn't right. So the book was entirely mm-hmm. right. And and so we, everybody that comes to work gets a copy of Good to Great. They've got 60 days to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, it really helps with with mm-hmm. our, our, our vocabulary. It, it streamlines how we communicate. Um, the number one takeaway from Good to Great is that it's a flow-based organization. Now, they don't... You won't see the words flow-based organization anywhere in good to great, but that's what they are describing. Um, you know, minimum um, required processes, minimum rules and regulation, and em- enormous doses of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And there's a construct that you have to build to allow that to release talent as opposed to channel talent. Um, and so... Um, so that, I work on that, embedding that in, in our culture on a daily basis. I, I do find good to great to be, you know, just, just to emphasize your point about as, as, a, as a culture-wide, company-wide, colleague-wise read, I find it to be one of the best books I've read in, in business, if you will, in the last probably 15 I, I, years. I think if you read it right and you think about it right, mm-hmm. it's the number one business book I've ever read. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, the other criticism I have heard from folks in higher education is, well, it's all about business. And I'm like, no, it's it's about organizations and systems and accountability and culture. There is a little compendium maybe you've seen called Good to Great for the Social Sector, mm-hmm. which is okay, but it was Jim Collins' attempt to bridge that that criticism gap. But, um, you know, the whole notion of, of uh, not letting distractions get in the way of your focus for what you're really about and being purpose driven in that way. And the patience to turn in his language, the flywheel that you'll get there if you're focused on the right things. I mean, I, I think all of that, you're right. It's just fantastic. So the fact that you give that to your colleagues is, is great. Yeah, The only adjustment I would make to the way Jim Collins presented it is he made it sound like it was the flywheel turned once and then you hit the acceleration. Um, we actually turn the flywheel at least once a year. Yeah. 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 Um, you, you have to do it continuously because otherwise you'll get stale. Uh, your context changes. Um, uh, one of the other things that, that, um, has a real impact on how we've evolved is our interpretation of the hedgehog. Um, the, 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 the hedgehog is less of a pronouncement and more of an assessment. When you look at it as an assessment, it's a very liberating thing. You know, what are you, what are you passionate about? Uh, and what, uh, what can you best, what can you be best in the world at and what drives your economic engine? Since we've been, um, using the hedgehog on a regular basis, 
the only one of those circles that hasn't changed is what drives our economic engine. Mm -hmm. um, the we, we've moved beyond just having a passion for creating community out of the built environment, mm -hmm. right? Because we do so much with um, management advisory services of help, helping people optimize how their assets work that you can't really say are being driven by our passion for community. Mm -hmm. They're being driven by our passion for the organization, mm -hmm. the college and the university and the impact that that makes on the world. Yeah. So our, our passion has, has expanded. And then when you think about what we can be best in the world at, well, as our talent density improves and we, our experience improves and we invent new ways of thinking about things and doing things, what we're able to be the best in the world at expands also. Yeah. And so, so that has modified. We reassess it um, whenever we feel like we need to. Well, and for our listeners who may not be familiar with the the good to great book, the the hedgehog is um, in Jim Collins' metaphor. You know, the hedgehog knows knows one big thing. That's a little simplistic and, and and not very descriptive. But I would argue, Paul, that what you're describing is um, uh, perhaps that core thing hasn't changed, but your application of it. In the way you talked about flexible focus earlier, the focus of the firm to improve the world in some way. I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm playing a little bit here with your ideas for the application to higher ed, but but what you're about in higher education may not change. But the way you get there, the things that you do, the people you serve, the communities you're in, uh, the modalities might change a little bit. I, I would I would suggest is maybe similar and a good lesson for those in higher education who are adapting also as things change. So um, I think it's a great reference point and we'll make sure we put the book in the, in the, in the links. That's right. There's a, there's a, there's another book. I wouldn't call it a business book, but it's um, to me, it holds the same kind of um, position in the context of all things you could read, um, which is designing the new American university. Um, if you haven't read that, that's a phenomenal book. Um, and what it does, so, I mean, you, you guys have been hired for a long time. Um, just as a, over, just a fanatical focus on what are the other schools? What are our peer schools doing? Right. Everybody wants to keep up with the Joneses. And one of the big takeaways, um, from that book is stop focusing on the competition. Higher education should not be a competition. Higher education should be stakeholder driven. Build what you need to drive your stakeholder outcomes, the reason why you exist. And, and that has become the real um, focus of, of, of how we deal with our clients. Um, understand that they have a targeted new reality that's stakeholder driven. If, they, if they're not articulating it in a stakeholder driven way, we will help them do that. Right? We've, you guys have read a ton of mission statements, right? 80% of them are <laughs> yeah. not worthy of the paper they're on. Yeah. They sound because, a lot alike. Or they're all the same. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're written like a horoscope, right? You can yeah. you, you can see yourself in it if you want to, right? It's mm -hmm. you, you can you can get out of it anything that you want. So we 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 diagrammatically simplify it. And we just say, what what is the outcome that you're built to produce in the world? And who's going to benefit from that outcome? So if you look at the, um, the Cal State system, um, the Cal State system, they're all supposed to be um, 
the the, the generators of the the the, the employment base that's going to support uh, the economy of, of the state of California. But that's a completely different thing if you're in San Marcos versus San Diego. Uh, it's a completely different thing if you're in you know San Francisco, um, and so so it becomes so the same way of looking at it is site adapted, and 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 if you look at it that way, you 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 can comfortably stop worrying about competing with other universities and just serve your stakeholders well, and you'll be fine. That is a dream for higher ed, and I love that you're doing that work. So I sit here and wonder, what's the difference, Paul, CEO, early in your career to Paul, CEO, today? What do you, what do you, how do you show up differently or the same from when you first started? Um, the thing that's consistent about me is I'm always looking at what's next. Um, if there's one thing that I've learned about my learned from my life's journey is you always have to keep focusing on what's next. Um, you have to be very focused on better is better and you need to be, uh, relevant. And so I'm always thinking about what's next. I mean, we've got 30 people, at least 30 people who are beyond where I was when I professionally, when I started the company, at least, at least that many. Um, and so, so I can be different because, um, B&D's growth and maturation enables me to be different already in this, in the beginning of this week, I can clearly recall at least three internal meetings I've had where if I hadn't been able to make the meeting, the client outcome would have been outstanding. And the fact that I'm no longer essential where, and I can remember very clearly that if I wasn't doing it, it wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. Now it's, now it's just happening. Mm -hmm. And so that frees me up to envision the, the, the next level of, of our company's evolution, which is fun. I get mm -hmm. to spend a lot more time, um, thinking about our structure, working on our culture, um, pressing forward on new, um, new methodologies, new ways of thinking things. And the thing that's, that, that's, that's great is I, I can just germinate an idea and throw it into the mix and it comes back way better than I ever <laughs> imagined it could be It's the most exciting thing. Well, you've, you've hired, hired good people and Kelsey and I, as former campus based, uh, higher ed professionals have, um, benefited from all those folks that you've hired over the years. I was thinking, Paul, about your words earlier, inspire, empower, and advance. And, um, um, you know, your, your work has been inspiring your story. Thank you for sharing your personal story about the context of your life and how it shaped your perspectives on the world. That's inspiring. Your staff are certainly been empowered, as I was just mentioning, to do the good work of the firm and the vision that you've set out. And, um, you know, I, I would argue too that certainly, um, in terms of advance, um, our campuses, the higher ed has has certainly advanced uh, with your help. So we're grateful for not only today but all the work that you and your colleagues do, and the way you approach higher education as partners. And certainly, that's how Kelsey and I now, having left campus-based work, want to approach our work too. So thanks for being that model for us, and thanks for your time today. You want you want to hear a gaudy stat? 
we went sure. back and looked at the, um, the, the the capital value of all the programs that we've helped put in place, and it's about forty billion dollars. Wow! Yeah, it's amazing. And so, who would have would have thunk it back in the day? Hey, right? that would have yeah. taken a lot of document storage. well congratulations and and, you know thanks again for what what you do and what your colleagues do and uh, we've all benefited so thanks again for today too well thanks for the conversation it was great and and thanks for allowing me the, the the latitude to you know go beyond the superficial and sort of dive down into the things that i care about most yeah you're welcome it was a pleasure Lauren, are you ready for some extra credit? I am ready for extra credit. I even have something I wanted to ask you about. Oh, what's that? Well, <laughs> during... like, do I like this role reversal? <laughs> oh yeah, feels di- feels different now, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, I I got my pen ready. I'm ready for go. <laughs> um, you know, during the conversation, Paul talked about mentors, and then after we stopped recording, in fact, he talked a bit more about mentors. I wish our listeners could hear. But he talked about what he looks for and how he evaluates mentorship and how to be a good mentor. I just wondered how, you know, what do you look for in mentors? If you've had good mentors in your life, what what is it about them that made them good mentors? And how do you evaluate, you know, people in leadership roles? Oh, well, two different I feel like we're in two different categories of conversation. So mentors, I think I've come by them on accident. I don't know that I was ever looking for a mentor. It was more, I was in spaces and places and I respected their leadership style or the, how they move things forward, how they uh, interacted with people. And then I wanted to spend more time with them. So our vice president of student affairs at UNLV, Dr. Rebecca Mills, she was just one of those places people. She came from the English department and was running the division of student affairs and she thought different and was able to blend academics and Mm non-academic people together. And I just wanted to spend more time with her. Right. And that just continued to happen throughout my career. I would also say when you ask how I evaluate leadership, I think there's people that you observe that it's like, I will never do what that person did. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The opposite of benchmark. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely learned a lot from that. How about you? Yeah, you know, I um like you, I think I have discovered mentors usually by accident. It's not formal programs and I think that's the best way. I mean, really mentorship is an invitation to a relationship, mutual, mutually offered. So that is something you discover, I think, just in interacting with people. But the leadership thing you just mentioned made me think of something that is I you know, Paul, after we stopped recording, said something along the lines of he's learned how to be a, a little less judgmental about all leaders that that he can take from different figures, different people, certain things that make sense, even though he wouldn't adopt their whole style or they made decisions that might be questionable. And I really, that resonated with me a bit too, because there've been people in my career, my life, who I'm embarrassed to mention that there's certain things I like about them because now there's a stigma associated in some way. Um, and I'm not even going to mention them on this podcast because I feel that. <laughs> but, I was like, what? Yeah, list? I know. I don't want to mention the <laughs> names. But I, but I will say one of the things I've noticed is when I look at people in leadership roles, 
I think one of the things I gravitate to is people who are in places they shouldn't be. You know, people who are in roles that weren't expected or in places that are really hard for them to be or in, um, in you know, situations that uh, the world would tell them they shouldn't be there. I, I think when I think about people across my career I've looked to, I've really, really admired people that are uh, not supposed to be in that role according to outdated norms or whatever it is. Yeah. Charging new paths, people that are yeah. opening the yeah. doorway to the future of opportunity for others. If yeah. I could yeah. put words in your mouth. Yeah. I think the other note, when we think about mentors, one thing that I've been talking a lot about lately too, is this idea of there's a difference between mentors, sponsors, and coach. Yes. And I think a lot of yeah. times we clump this all into mentors. And so I really like the idea that we have mentors or people that we look up to and they're not, they're not perfect. They're human. And so the reality is how do you get to know people and pick and choose and utilize yeah. and suspend judgment. Yeah. Well, things. and the best mentors to me have been those who've been so human that they've been able to share with me the mistakes they've made, which is to me has made it, made them much more attractive as mentors too. So I got that language from you, mentor, sponsors, and coach. I think it's great because it actually broadens the number of people in your life that can help you succeed if you can think that, you know, in, in those ways. So thank you for that. Hey, you're welcome. I'm here for you. <laughs> Until next time. Bye-bye. Campus Confidential is presented by Compass Group, produced by Corey Insko and Jen Fisher, with your hosts, Kelsey Harmon-Finn and Lauren Rowland.